Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Vicky Petratus. And firstly, let me say thank you to everyone who has stuck around. It has been a little bit of a break between podcast episodes. Final Draft has migrated to a new podcast platform. Thank you so much to Megaphone for welcoming us. And thank you everyone who has hunted us down. If you are new to the podcast or if you are returning after our little break, please make sure you're subscribed. It is great to be bringing you new, incredible Australian books every single week. And I wouldn't want you to miss out on a single one. Now, Let's get back to that book. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is all about books, writing, and literary culture. We're dedicated to Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week, we're looking into the issues that drive our storytelling to help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. And to SER broadcast from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, that these are unceded lands and treaty has never been made with the First Nations of this country. Today on the show, I'm joined by Vicky Petratus. She's a writer, presenter, a teacher and a podcaster. She's well known for her true crime writing, but today she's joining me with her first fiction book, The Unbelieved. It is fiction, but it is so uncomfortably close to real life. It could be ripped straight from the headlines. As a woman stumbles out of a bar, unsteady on her feet, she finds a man has followed her out. But as he grabs at her, it's clear he's not there to help. There's a string of drink spiking incidents in bars around Deception Bay, and it points to a serial rapist. So why isn't anyone joining the dots? Detective Sergeant Antigone Pollard has seen this before. It's the case that drove her out of Melbourne. But can she take on a system that says it's all a bit of fun and boys will be boys? Can she help the women of Deception Bay protect themselves? That's the hook, guys. Join me as we discover Vicky Petratus's The Unbelieved. Hey, Vicky. Hey, Andrew. Oh, is it still connecting us? Can you hear me? Oh, no, wait, hang on. What about if I turn you up? Hello. Hi, can you hear me? I can hear you now. I um, just needed to turn you up. <laughs> Terrific to have you here this morning. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, I'm very happy to be here. Looking forward to our chat. This is going to be fun. Um, I've had a lot of fun reading The Unbelieved. Um, if that's the right word, I find I'm saying that a lot lately. It's great to read a really meaty novel and then you go, did I enjoy that or what's the word for when you deal with issues like this? Yeah, I love it when a lot of people have said, I loved it. It was disturbing, but it was great. And and they kind of oscillate between um, mm. between the t- sort of dark and light. Yeah, I mean, I, I think my enjoyment, I'm going to say my enjoyment comes from seeing issues on the page that need to be talked about and and being able to enter that space. But otherwise, shall we jump in? Yeah. It is my pleasure to be welcoming to the show Vicky Petratus. Vicky is a writer, presenter, teacher, and podcaster. She's well known for her true crime writing, and today she's joining me with a new book, The Unbelieved. The Unbelieved is fiction, but it is so uncomfortably close to real life, it could be ripped from the headlines. Vicky, welcome. This is, this is such a pleasure to be, uh, to be chatting about The Unbelieved. I'm certainly thrilled to be out and about chatting about the unbelieved because it's 
it's getting such uh, really incredible feedback. I'm a bit flabbergasted. Doesn't surprise me. Not at all. Not at all. And look, you are you are no slouch. It's not like I mean, this is your debut fiction, but you got a few books. Like you could probably fill a shelf. Yeah. Um, and that's what yeah. I, I wanted to start there before we get into the unbelieved. I wanted to ask you about writing and that switch to fiction. Now, The Unbelieved won the Allen and Unwin Crime Fiction Prize, which, I mean, that's reason enough to stick it out there in the world. People are going to be interested in that. But these styles, you're a true crime writer, you've got a, a shelf of books, these styles seemingly so related, but really, I think when we get down to it, so very far apart, true crime and, and crime fiction. Can you reflect a little bit for me, working on true crime and then on crime fiction about the the style, the research you go into, the the audience that you're reaching. When I wrote true crime, well, I still write true crime. It, it's essentially it is storytelling. Mm. So I think as a true crime author, I have the ability to draw in a reader, and I have the ability to um, you know, to, to engage with an audience. I have the ability to kind of take that up and down flow because true crime is incredibly dramatic, but it's also a story of resilience. And so I think those kind of themes definitely went funneled straight into the unbelieved. So in 2017, I decided to do a PhD in creative writing. A lot of writers are doing that because it's, it fits in with our, it's a 100,000 word project. It's 80,000 words in a creative. So that's what a novel is. It's passed, by the way. And well done. the other 20,000 words is a critical component. So you're looking at the research that underpins the novel. And so I, I thought, well, rather than just do more true crime or true crime slightly differently, I thought I really wanted to challenge myself to do something really different because why do a PhD if you're going to just do more of what you've always done? That, that, that was, my, you know, that was my point of view. And so I thought, well, I'm going to fictionalise all of these things that have annoyed me or angered me over the years. And as a true crime author, you can't really comment, you know, your commentary is a little bit limited in, in like, I'm not in my books. A lot of true crime authors have the first person narrative and I never have. And so um, I just wanted to kind of explore things like sentencing and the ability of the law to protect women, I think, is more limited than what it should be. Low sentences for crimes against women and children, um, women living in fear of the <coughs> law not protecting them and the law not being the law not being organised to protect them. Mm. Um, and so all of those things just got funneled right in. And at the same time, I had reached an age of probably my early 50s, I just turned 57, but I had reached an age where we kind of, us, us girls of the, the 1980s were told that we could have everything in career and, and there was equality and it had been achieved. And, and so we moved through the world with that in mind. And then all of a sudden, what started to happen is you started to see this slippage and it's like we didn't achieve equality. It, it, it felt like it for a minute, but because we didn't hold on to it or we didn't keep fighting, which is very annoying to have to keep fighting for something, 
that you see, and I saw as a woman in my 50s, I saw women around me being, um, you know, in abusive work situations and and partnerships at home that were unequal and this division of labour and, you know, women do 70% of it and just these little inequalities that meant that every woman that you knew was exhausted and irritated and also copying it at work. And, uh, and I was no exception. So I think that part of what went into that book was this fight back against the system and fight back against abusive language. If you speak out at work, it limits your career. And, and if you don't speak out, then you don't, you know, like it's, it, it shouldn't have to be that hard to go and do your job and it shouldn't have to be that hard to be in the world. It should have felt more equal and it just really didn't. It feels, it feels like to me, sorry, pardon me. <clears throat> it feels like to me another fundamental difference when I'm thinking and reading and listening to true, true crime and true and crime fiction are the parameters that you're working within. You can only go so far into how people were thinking and feeling in true crime. And I think we'll get more into this when we're talking about the book, but I'm, I'm really interested in the way fiction allows us to explore inner worlds. You've touched on it there um, in talking about the issues that you were hoping to explore and address. I was wondering, did you want to use your, your fictional window as, the, as the, the creator into both your detective and your perpetrator's perspectives and examining their inner world by proxy examines our, our world at large? Yeah, it's interesting because I wanted to have that strong female protagonist, mm. but I do switch points of view in the novel, and I think it was just me being a bit of a smarty pants because you know, it's a PhD. So you can not, you know, you can. So I've got first person past tense is most of the uh, most of the novel, but every now and again it slips into third person past tense, and then there's a second person present tense. And so what I wanted to do throughout the novel was have this shifting perspective so that you have, um, I have Antigone moving through her world in this in this I narrative, so I walk into the bar, and then every now and again I'll have, say, a Norma O'Malley coming in to visit her and I switch to Norma's perspective. And I did that just as a literary, you know, can you do this? I don't know. Can you, you know, because yeah. I'm learning this too. And I just thought I want to show what she's like from the perspective of another woman. And so I just did these little switches, and I don't know that most people really notice that, um, but it was just something that I wanted to do. And then every now and again I have little snippets of statements and then I have the radio guys <coughs> talking, the radio shock jock. Mm. Um, and I, I switch to his perspective because I want to show that you've got something that's really deep and worrying and upsetting mm. and then how it's trivialised with a shock jock. And I needed to show that what it looks like and argh, how frustrating it is when you see something that's, that means so much just totally flipped on its head yeah. to the victimisation of the victim, the re-victimisation of the victim and the victimisation of the offender, which happens. This is a thing. So I just wanted to shine a spotlight on that because I guess if you read it as fiction, you just go, oh, that is so unfair. Yes, that happens. And so you look out for it. Once you know something exists, 
you look out for it. Mm. Hey, let's do a massive spoiler that nobody is going to know is a spoiler until they've read the whole book and then it's not a spoiler anymore. You mentioned second person present. That has a very prominent place in the book. What power did it give you? This is people don't write in that. Like you, you don't often get that at all, let alone, you know, a whole narrative. What power did it give you? Second person gives you incredible power. And as a teacher, I use it with the kids so that I say to them, when you use second person, as like Paul Jennings used it a lot as a uh, writer for children. And what it does is if you say you wake up suddenly in the middle of the night and the kid immediately says, okay, that's me. So I'm in my bed. They they immediately furnish all of their bedroom details and their carpet details and their house details. And you don't have to give them anything because it's like you're in your bedroom and you wake up in the middle of the night and you've heard a noise, but it could have been a dream, but maybe not. And the kid is immediately putting themselves right there. And so second person kids love it. And so I always do a second person exercise. I'm doing writing workshops with kids. And I wanted to do that because the purpose of second person is to put the reader in your shoes. Mm. And, I mean, some writers do it. They'll go, picture this. Imagine if you, you know, whatever. And so I thought that that was a really powerful way and it was a powerful way for the character that uses that to reflect and put the reader in their shoes. Mm. All right, I'll pop a cork back in that bottle. Um, people who are picking up the book after listening to this interview might even, um, I, I think it would serve to have in the back of your head, whose shoes could I possibly benefit from going into in that second person? But no more, no more spoilers. Okay, before we, I, I'm, we're getting to the unbelievable, I absolutely promise you, Vicky, but I, I, I really want to, to get your perspective on something here because true crime is so incredibly popular, but it's particularly so with women. There are a lot of takes on why, and I'm going to ask you for yours. What do you make of true crime listening and readership demographics? And, and why are they that way? Yeah, it is women. It is women. Anecdotally, if I do a talk, um, it will be, you know, if I do a talk for 300 people, maybe 250 will be women. And the other 50 might be partners that the woman has dragged along. Um, no, because I'm sure they're interested too. But what I, what my theory is, is that women... Um, okay, story theory. When we put an MRI on your brain as you're reading a story, it shows that people read and and experience everything that the characters do mm. so that we actually read as participants, not observers. Mm. And if you want to read more about that, Lisa Cron, Story Genius, amazing. So she talks about that. And so if you, if you extrapolate out from that and say, well, we're reading as participants, then maybe – we read because we want to find out how to protect ourselves. So if I'm reading true crime, I you know keep reading, how does a woman get out? Oh, my God, she doesn't get out. And if that was me, that you know, I wouldn't park next to a white van and I wouldn't, you know, women, as a true crime writer, people come up to me and say, ever since I read your Frankster book, I always check the back seat of my car before I hop in. And so I know from experience that this has a self-protection event And I also think, I read a book once years and years ago, and it talked about slavery in America. It Mm. it, it talked about when uh, America, back in its deep, dark history, had slaves, and the slaves knew the masters and knew every whim and every 
you know, he gets up at 8.30 and I've got to have his tea ready and he likes his tea like this. But if you talk to the masters and said, tell me about the slave, they didn't know, they, they might have known their name. So what it, what this book talked about is it talked about the power that people with less power will know and study the people with more power because their life depends on it. Mm. And I wonder if in true crime, subliminally, you've got women whose lives, very lives and safety depends on being able to know what that world looks like. Um, I wrote a book back in 1999 with the head of the Victoria Police Child Exploitation Squad about how pedophiles operated because we took all of these case studies and said, right, this is how this pedophile targeted this this group of children. Uh, he worked at a creche, he targeted single mothers, he had a babysit. So if you know how he operates and you see those signs in someone that you know, you can protect your children. And it's kind of this notion of working backwards. And so maybe because the men hold the physical power and in a patriarchal society they hold way more power than is what is healthy, maybe the ones with less power are looking and wanting to know exactly the state of play because their safety relies on it. Mm. That's my theory. I think that's a pretty good that's a pretty good theory. Mm. Now, Vicky, I have promised we're going to get to your book. It's pretty much why we set up this chat. Um, I am speaking with Vicky Petratus. Her new novel is The Unbelieved. And Vicky, as we begin in on the narrative, I think this is actually a really good and important time to throw a bit of a content warning on the conversation. I can't predict everything we're going to talk about, but based on the narrative, I know it is going to deal in areas including violence, violence against women. And this is something that some people may find disturbing and they may not want to hear. So, look, if that is something that you are concerned will be triggering for you, um, will be upsetting for you. You may want to tune out now and know that if this is something that is concerning for you, that help uh, is available, you can call Lifeline on 131114 at any time of the day. Now, Vicky, the unbelieved, I just want to set this up for people. As a woman stumbles out of a bar unsteady on her feet, a man has followed her out, but as he grabs at her, it's clear he's not there to help. A string of drink spiking incidents in bars around Deception Bay points to a serial rapist. So why isn't anyone joining the dots? Detective Sergeant Antigone Pollard has seen this before. It's the case that drove her out of Melbourne. Can she take on the system that says it's all a bit of fun and boys will be boys? Can she help the women of Deception Bay protect themselves? I just wanted to, and I, you know, look, it feels like I gave something away there. This is like in the, the opening pages. You really start strong. And your protagonist, Antigone Pollard, she has a bit of a loaded name. The daughter of Oedipus was fated to cop it at the hands of ancient Greek patriarchy. Not that I guess they would have necessarily framed it that way back then. It seems that your Antigone may also be destined for a similar fate. So tell me about how Antigone Pollard came to you, why you needed her to take on the crime in Deception Bay. I wanted to have a protagonist who was fearless and we love them in male protagonists. We love Jack Reacher and we love Hercule Poirot and we love these men that just get on with stuff and and they don't have any, um, they don't have to pick up kids from school, they don't have have any pulls on their time. And I just wanted to create this character that leaps onto the page. And I also wanted to create a character 
who didn't hold the power to herself so that she, the minute that she gets there, she is wanting to share the power. So when she's asked to teach self-defence to the local CWA, she's there. So what she's about is not just being powerful, but she's about empowering other women. And I wanted her, and I called her Antigone because I wanted a, a name from mythology. I wanted to grab someone straight. I wanted to grab a hero. And I wanted to grab a hero, the name that was someone who would literally lay down her life for her beliefs, that she would never back down, even though maybe a more sensible path would be to just step away. And uh, both Antigones don't do that. So I think she she was a really good hero and I didn't want her to have a partner. I didn't want her to have children. I just wanted her to be able to get on with the job. Not the women who have those things uh, can't get on with the job, but I just wanted her to be unencumbered like a lot of the male heroes are. Mm. And I wanted her to be, be fearless. And that's totally based on when I wrote a book on Brian the Skull Murphy, who was Australia's toughest cop in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and he talked to me about, uh, I spent a year with him, and he talked to me about being fearless. He didn't feel fear. And I just got my mind just ticking over in what life we could live if we didn't feel fear. And just that liberating you know, she doesn't really get nervous or she she gets a bit nervous with public speaking every now and again, but, you know, don't we all? I don't, but I've done too much of it. But, you know, but she, but she just doesn't, she will go toward a problem rather than back away from a problem. And I think what she represents is the person that we all want to be. We all want to be like that. We all want to stand up for stuff. She doesn't barrel through. She's not, I think she's also really sensitive um, but she will take on a fight if she needs to. Mm. I think it's fair to call Deception Bay idyllic, at least on the surface. Antigone has left Melbourne because of the way a case got under her skin. And I guess we expect some level of crime in the city. What did your your setting offer you? Well, taking the, the story to Deception Bay, what did it offer you in the telling of The Unbelieved? Um, putting Having a fictitious town... It, it gives you the the old, you know, the old Agatha Christie's, and you've got the, um, you know, the house on the hill, and everybody's contained. And I think in a in a city setting, someone can come and do something bad, and then they can just fade off. Mm. But I think in the in a country setting, when you've got a town, you've got these situations where people are all connected, and and part part of the, the novel is this connection. Everybody's connected if you dig beneath the surface. And so you've got this more intimate setting and I think you can kind of contain your bad people and your good people to this one particular place. And it's funny because at the moment I'm in a little country town and I'm doing, um, you know, talks at libraries and things like that and there's a lot of people that are saying to me, oh, you've, you've really captured, captured a little country town. But I... I don't, I really haven't spent a lot of time, like I'm in the city, but I think what I've captured more than just a little country town, I've captured that human nature mm. where you've got the, these little micro power structures and you've got people that count out a certain other people and you've got people that in maybe the police force that can make decisions that maybe they couldn't make 
in the city. And so I guess a country town really works. And then you've got the beauty and the ruggedness and the danger of the actual environment too. I want to interrogate a little bit that comparison you made there because often the Agatha Christie's, it gets called cosy crime. And and one one reason you hear that is because a feature of the small town, a feature of the closed circle is there's, I guess, a certainty offered that bad things can happen, but we can root them out and we can kind of expunge them from the body politic. But you you don't do that. You go deeper. You show that the apple rots to the core. I don't want to say any more here, but I, I would point out that I, I feel like you show us maybe something a little bit more real. And when we read Cozy Crime, we're looking for reassurance. And then the unbelieved is not reassuring. No, it's not. I think, well, it's it's not reassuring that the law works for women. Mm. I think that's, and, and, and it doesn't. So, yay, you know, that's what it needed to show. But I think what is reassuring to me as a writer, and I hope this came across, was that women are powerful and women won't take stuff lying down and women will never, ever stop trying to get that kind of equality and trying to get fairness. It's all about fairness. Mm. And women will help each other to get that. And I think we have this social narrative that I watch with great interest when we need to create. We see this with Megan and Kate. We need to create the witch and we need to create the princess. We need we need there to be... The, um, the royal. I'll just, just contextualise that for people. You're talking about the royals, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, we need to be a villain and we need to be, you know, and it's just like, really? This, this, is this really a thing or is this just to sell newspapers, and I'm very cynical of all of those kind of things. So what I wanted to show was I think the experience of most women in that if I move through my world, I only ever see support and I support others. This is how my world works in terms of all of the women that I work with as a teacher, all the women that I work with as a writer, all of the friends that support me and I support them. It is only ever supportive. And I, I want to show that because I think we can get this, we can fall into these tropes of, you know, the bitchy and all that sort of stuff. And I just didn't want to do that. I just wanted to mirror what I think is most people's view of the world. So, yes, while it is bleak, sometimes you have to show bleak, and I do this in Mm. true crime, you have to show bleak in order to shine a light on bleak and people get outraged about bleak. That's what I'm hoping. I want to go a little bit deeper on that too because I feel like what you were saying there about your supportive network, too often we we find ourselves, we either have a supportive network and it can be very hard to conceptualise of the way the system can oppress you or you are in that situation where you you do feel like you're oppressed by the system and then, you know, none of this would be new. Um, So you open with the attempt at drugging of a, a woman except this time it is a cop, it's Antigone, and Antigone is able to thwart the per- perpetrator. It all feels really open and shut. You'd be forgiven if you weren't holding a good 400 pages that this was a pamphlet, not a novel. Um, but, of course, then Antigone, things happen. The guy gets off and we, we have a case that needs to be built. Tell me about the system that Antigone faces, how you built a story, not just around the fact of the crimes, but the difficulty in bringing them to justice. 
Yeah, and this is what we see all the time is that you can get something that's really clear-cut and you can get something that's really, really clear and the whole world would be looking at it going, well, of course. But what we have in our society, what we have is this twisting that occurs Mm. and what I wanted to do was show that that happens right from the very start. So what we see, because we're seeing it play out, we see a very clear predator and we see a woman fighting back. But immediately, once this hits the legal system, immediately we see this questioning. Well, he says you tried to crack onto him. He says that you, and and that's all it takes. That's all it takes for the woman very quickly to be the villain and the perpetrator to be the victim. We see this all the time. We're seeing it playing out in the media as we speak. We get celebrities who, um, oh, those four women are just accusing me because they want to be famous. And then you get all of the fans. Of course, you're beautiful. You could not ever be a predator. I mean, it's nuts. Mm. It it is nuts. And that we twist the narrative to, oh, poor him. Not poor women who've been molested, but, oh, poor him. He's pretty. We saw it play out with Johnny Depp. And the amount of abuse that, you know, I mean, who's any of us to judge what really happened there? But we know through statistically, we know that men are usually perpetrators and women are usually victims and there was a very clear uh, disparity between the power of both of those people and yet it seemed to me that half the world just jumped on her. What if if she's telling the truth? Mm. What if she is an abused and battered person um, but but we we were prepared. I wasn't, but you know many were prepared to ignore texts that said you know I want to burn your corpse and have sex with you. But many were prepared. Oh well, that's just because he was angry. That's just, we mm. were prepared to ignore all of the evidence so that we could fault back to the fact that uh, he is the victim and she's the nasty villain. It was, and we see it play out. It's mm, disturbing. It was, it was both shocking, but also not at all surprising. So I'm preparing for my chat with you this morning, Vicky, and my wife. Sort of, you know that noise you make with with a friend or a partner, and you're just like, okay, I know you've got something to say, and I'm like, what? What is it? And she's she's reading an article about um, a, a Queensland commission into violence against women. This is this is like happening real time, and a senior police officer who has made just the most horrid misogynistic um, comments about women saying something, coming up with spurious statistics about, you know, oh, I think 80% or 90% of women, they're, they're either lying or they're, they're, misun- they're misrepresenting. And it's just like, you know, it's, it feels, sometimes you read a narrative and it feels like, well, you know, yeah, but that's fiction. And, but when it's playing out in the headlines and it's playing out with senior figures, suddenly the, 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 the story in Deception Bay, the novel of the unbelieved is, uh, it's a very real-world situation. It is. And uh, you've just touched on something that I find fascinating. When we want to denigrate women, and I first noticed it with Hillary, uh, a friend of mine had gone to the States during that campaign, and she came back and she goes, I don't think Hillary's going to win, because she said everywhere I went, people, I'd say, you can vote for Hillary. And everywhere, people would be saying to her, no, Hillary's a liar. And then this Hillary's a liar thing took off. Now, we know that Donald Trump's a liar. Not only is he a liar, he's a nutbag. But this Hillary's a liar 
because this is the worst thing that a woman could be. Now, then you see it reflected back at Amber Heard. What's mm. Amber Heard's biggest sin? Amber Heard's a liar. She lied. And so we we label these women, mm. and I think they've labelled Megan a liar, and, and just watch for that word because this is the word that once once you go, Megan's a liar, Hillary's a liar, Amber's a liar, everyone goes, oh, okay, that's that's uh, they're out of the picture mm. because they're a liar. So this label that comes, now if you said to people now, what did Hillary lie about, I don't even know that they'd be able to tell you. Um, the, the only thing I heard that Amber lied about was some makeup brand that wasn't available and mm. she said she used it to cover a bruise. <coughs> liar! Mm. <laughs> you know, like this, this there's a, there is a liar. That narrative never happens with, with men unless it's a political, I think it's FOMO maybe, but um, but you don't get that. We never got Johnny Depp's a liar, did we? In all of that, we never got he's a liar, but certainly she's a liar, and, and I, I'm very aware of this narrative. Mm. Now, if you read Patrick Tidmarsh's very, very good book on why sexual assault, why the conviction rates are so low, he talks about studies, and I think they're worldwide, put women giving false reports at around 2%. Now, if we then have a corresponding uh, 96% of offenders are actually found not guilty, um, when we're not, we're, we're thinking that all women are liars mm. and we're thinking that no rapists are liars. And that's my favourite line in the book when one of the junior officers says to Antigone, you know, women lie sometimes and she just turns and she says, yep, and rapists lie all the time. It's on the back of the book. If anyone wants to check this out, this is um this is one of the the grabs that is on the back of the unbelief. So you can go like when you're in your bookstore, you don't have to search through for that one. You can actually get that context. We're really we're really um connecting with with the the headlines at the moment, Vicky, and the uh, the unbelieved is peppered with cultural and literary references. Wazza mentions Breeley's eggshell skull in relation to the case. We hear Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins' name from a character's lips. I also detected, like not directly referenced, but I detected themes dealt with so devastatingly in Jess Hill's "See What You Made Me Do." Did you see yourself in conversation with a growing popular conversation around male violence? Yeah, what, what's really fantastic is that you, you we had, and remember I started this in 2017, so in the background of my writing was Trump, Weinstein, Me Too, Women's Marches, Brittany, Grace, Jess Hill. I went to the launch of that um, and, and Jane Gilmore's with the headlines and I, I referenced that too in the book that, you know, some feminists got a hold of the headlines. And, you know, I mean, we all know that Jane Gilmore's work in that area and and so, yeah, I wanted a lot of cultural references mm. and I wanted a lot of um, almost kind of like book recommendations so that people could go because everyone should read Greeley's Eggshell Skull. Mm. And I wanted to have this, how cr true crime is really, um, is influencing fiction because now what you're getting after Jess Hill and after Jane Gilmore and Louise Milligan's witness is a definitely another one. Um, I use the treatment of women in court, definitely. That's uh, very much influenced by that. But then you're starting to get these fight-back fictions when you've got Jane Carr as the mother and you've got Deborah Oswald's a family doctor. I'm just reading another one, B.M. Carroll's, um, I think it's Got What You Deserve or something like that. I've just started it. And these fight-back novels where women are just going, we're not taking this lying down. Mm. 
So I think that these cultural references is how the truth is influencing the fiction and we're starting to move away from, and I think I, I love doing this, moving away from, you know, crime, clue, 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 red herring, red herring, solution. And instead what you can have is you can have a book that actually deals with these really important issues so that at the end of it, everyone that reads it has a satisfying read because they like the characters, but they also have a better understanding of that issue around, gee, that's I'm going to watch out for headlines. I'm going to, one of the reviewers said, oh, my God, now that I've read this book, I have to rethink my default position every time I see a headline mm. that that accuses a woman of lying. I'm going to rethink that. I um, As I read, I mean, <clears throat> if you're in, I've got such a frog in my throat this morning, Vicky. Please, please forgive me as I just go, <clears throat> at least I can turn myself down. As I read, I, I thought it's really wonderful. So I'm in this, you know, beautifully privileged position where I get books ahead of time and I'm I'm reading them as they're landing. And so these cultural references are very fresh to me. And I've, but a little part of me thought, this is also really brave. A lot of authors might shy away from really too closely placing um, their their book in in time. Um, but then I thought, wow, how amazing would it be for someone to pick up the unbelieved in 20 years time and think, isn't it cool that we've moved on from that? Isn't it cool that we actually did learn? Now, the evidence of history suggests that that may be an incredibly fast timeline and that we don't learn that quickly. But I I liked that you've placed the unbelieved in space and time and that we are going to be able to kind of check back in on this and say we did or didn't learn our lessons. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. I just... I think that um, as a true crime author, as a podcaster, as a, as a now fiction writer, I just write what is really important to me mm-hmm. and I don't consciously say I'm going to place it in time. <coughs> and I always love it when when I do an interview and someone points out something that I didn't realise that I had done. So thank mm-hmm. you. Um, but I think as a writer and advice for other writers, it's good to just I mean, I know the rules backwards, but it's good to just still um, take your own path. Mm. I had some feedback after one of my podcasts and one of the, um, per- the person said to me, she goes, I love what you do in your podcast is that you really put the victims at the front of the story and we really feel like we know them at the end. And she said in most podcasts, the victim is only mentioned by kind of name and age and her victimness. And I thought, you know, I, I didn't, I always put victims first. I always do that. I've always done that in my books and I naturally did that in my true crime podcast. Now, if I had have listened to a whole lot of others and used them as the rules and not done that, you know, I would have lost something that's really important to me. So I think that that's how I always do it. I, I'm very driven by what sits well with me like antigone will never ever get beaten that was that was my number one rule i'm not going to use her as a punching bag in a lot of fiction the the female protagonist is used as a punching bag and i refuse to do that because i i this violence porn that that uh, I'm, I'm not doing that so i think you have to have your own set of standards almost isn't mm. it very nice segue here. Can you see my notes, Vicky? Because uh, my next question, <laughs> um, 
I, I wanted to pick up on that because Antigone, she becomes this rallying point for the women of Deception Bay. She's something of a folk hero after she's stopped the attack at the pub. She's invited to teach self-defence uh, at the Country Women's Association uh, against against the strong, uh, you know, advice of her, her senior officer. There is this really important scene, though, where um, she's beginning these self-defence classes where the women discuss that it just shouldn't be necessary. Teaching women to defend themselves should be secondary to teaching men not to rape. It seems obvious, but do you think enough people understand this? <laughs> no, no, because we don't want to hurt man feelings. Mm. Um, because, And this is one thing that I loved, in the, the line that I loved in Bree Lee's Eggshell Skull was when Bree says, well, we know that one in four girls under 15 are victims of sexual assault or unwanted sexual attention. But does that mean that one in four Australian men are pedophiles? And I'm like, good on you, Bree Lee, for, for, for saying that because we always talk about how many victims there are and yet when do we ever talk about how many perpetrators there are? And I think it's... it's more complex than that because what I think it is is I think that it is an, an, a cultural entitlement uh, that we've all seen in men around us and boys around us that entitles people to take what they want, to treat people how they mm. want, that entitles people to a feeling of power and if you have a feeling of power it has to be the corresponding subjugation of those beneath you and we've all seen people move. We've all worked for people like that. We've all, um, our friends have worked for people like that. So I think that we've all seen people that move through their world and need to exert power. And and it's not just, I mean, women do it as well, but, but you see it, I think, more prominently in men. And when this becomes the default setting, and, and there's all these little microaggressions in The Unbelieved, when men will shake the hand of a man and talk exclusively to a man, when Antigone and her male partner are in the room. But it's like there's all of these little little subtle tiny things that every woman is saying, oh, my God, we've all had that. Mm. Um, there's a lot of resonance in this. And it's like if we think that it's okay to ignore the woman in the room <coughs> and to not talk to her in equal with equal regard and respect, then, then there's something really wrong and this leads mm. and this is why... I think as a feminist, um, all of these little things count so much because as a time writer, I know where they lead mm. and they lead to the entitlement of objectifying women and they lead to the entitlement of, well, you could drug a woman and you could um, all in, in a group uh, subject to her to whatever you want because she doesn't really matter. Mm. Do, do you know what I mean? Like oh, the, yeah. this, you know, this is why I fight so much and I'm sure that I annoy of my family, but because uh, I do get on my high horse, but but I know where it leads, and it leads to a very dangerous place. Mm. It's incredible to what you just did there. The way we we tend to be very one eyed with statistics, and of course that statistic that that Brealey mentions, and the way it needs to be viewed from both sides. Um, looking at who are the perpetrators, and you know, if we if we have a statistic about how women are treated, it means there must be a corresponding. Um, you know, uh, statistics about the it. perpetrators. It always strikes me we tend to do this 
um, exceptionalism isn't the right word. We tend to do this kind of monstering where we will we say, well, we can't deny that the crime is happening, but then we other the criminal and we say, well, this must be a an exceptionally um, bad person. This is a person who is outside of normal society, and therefore it can't be us. It's um you know it's this it's this horrible monster. Jack the Ripper is you know the the historical boogeyman that we look at where he has been built up to the point of being more than human. Again, spoiler alert, uh, tune out for like 30 seconds on what I'm about to say because all I wanted to say, Vicky, is like kind of amazing that you take this on and um, I don't know if this is the right term, but you basically democratise that kind of arsolery in the way the unbelieved plays out. Um, I don't know if you want to respond to that or if we'll just we'll pull the spoiler warning back up and we, we won't ruin anything for people. But I just I wanted to acknowledge that. I think that in in life, mm. um, a lot of women in and I've heard this in the police force. So the police force, of course, used to be it, it's male dominated, and we've all heard horrendous stories um, of say you know senior police and the way that women are treated, and. I think now I you hear women if they talk about a man that does that, it will always be prefaced with he's a dinosaur. Mm. So even I think women are starting to feel like these guys that grasping onto this power are now um, they're dinosaurs. They're past. They're going to become extinct, mm. and so we don't have the tolerance for it. But at the same time, you know, in recent history, I've seen it. I've seen mm. it. And I think workplaces are now getting to the point where women, when women step forward and say, look, this is happening in the workplace and this is how I'm being treated, um, that companies are becoming worried that they're going to get sued. Mm. And so they're doing something about it because it's going to hit the hip pocket. They're not doing something about it because I think they they think that, you know, there should be equality. Um, but I, I just think that it, it's out there and I wanted to – show in the novel that it's toppling. Mm. I think my spoiler was probably vague enough that I haven't messed the yeah, story up for anyone. Yeah. I also just want to, while we're on this topic, before we move forward, shout out to Wazza, who is Antigone's partner. And the way you write Wazza, he is not, he's a good man, but he is not a paragon. And I really like the way you showed his discomfort in situations and the fact that he understands what is necessary, but you also show how difficult it is for him to do that. And he doesn't always get it right. And sometimes he has to, I guess he has to play the bloke to to make a situation work. Yeah, he understands the game, but he doesn't like it. And he I wanted to create Waza as a as a character because it, it, it's really easy to have you know your evil evil guys and and every novel I think needs your evil guys, but I also wanted to show because most women will say, look, there's a lot of inequality but every man that I know is lovely, mm. you know, and that's the same in my family. I've got a great dad and great brothers and great husband and, you know, all the men in your sphere are lovely, but it's out there. And, you know, I've got a husband who will 
um, you know, he'll come home from the supermarket and say, uh, you know, there was a guy yelling at a young girl because she parked too close to his car or whatever. And I went up and went, "What are you doing, mate?" And you know, and, she, and mm. the girl was really grateful that I I stepped in. And I mean, it, this is what women see. So I didn't want to. I mean, you have to have your bad guys, but I also wanted to show this this example of a character who every woman will go, yeah, that's like my brother, that's like my friend. And I wanted them, I wanted him to be um, really respectful of her and she of him and they just get along really well. Yeah. And I wanted to show that as as the really typical. There are some really good guys in that and there are some good guys like Ralph Bartender who when one of the perpetrators or, you know, alleged perpetrators comes into the bar and he goes, you're not welcome here. And when he tells Antigone, he goes, look, I don't know whether it's true or not, but he's not welcome. And she kind of gets a bit of a lump in her throat mm. because she goes, well, thank you. You know, thank you for standing up for me. But she, she gets a lump in her throat because it's so unexpected mm. that she doesn't expect people not only to believe her, but she doesn't expect people to then take action on her side. You do. And so um, I wanted to show these things and how grateful women were just simply to be believed and supported. Mm. You do move into that very fraught territory um, with with some of these characters. The, um, you know, the... The, the point of empathy that um, so devastatingly tripped up our, our, former, our former PM of I understand because I've got daughters and, and quite a few of the men, that is their point of reference. And it is a, there is a validity to it, but there, it is also a, a major shortcoming that that's, that's all you've got. Like, you, you know, in a world where you are surrounded by people who have a right to be there, you, you had to be related to someone before you had your in. Yeah. And even though some of them have daughters, mm. they don't, and, and the point that I always want to make is that every time you allow something to pass without mentioning mm. it, the world becomes less safe for everyone's daughters, yeah. including your own. Mm. And this is what the unbelieved, I think the key message to it is when we don't address behaviour and we don't believe women, it escalates. Mm. More women are in danger. It's not just those women that – so if we have – when you – Think about these celebrities. If if we have celebrities who are sexually abusing women mm. and beating women, the fact that we jump on the, the victims and say, you're liars, and then we raise the man onto a pedestal, what message does that send not only to that man but all men to say, well, we get away with it. All we have to do is call her a liar mm. and we walk free. And we're the victim and everybody supports us. This is dangerous, dangerous ground. Mm. And, of course, this all connects to the very real, but it's so often maligned concept of privilege. And it is really important to, to talk about this idea that privilege exists. It exists on sort of every every vector of, of our cultural sort of life. But very much so we're talking about male privilege here. I was intrigued by the ways you explore privilege throughout the town, throughout prominent figures in the town and its institutions. Um, and you've brought uh, – Antigone has come to Deception Bay. She is this incredibly powerful woman, this incredibly powerful force within uh, the police force there. Um, as a writer, though, like, I mean, you've got this incredible character you obviously care for. How does it feel to be constantly throwing these frustrations and roadblocks in her way? 
Well, what I think I'm doing is just giving her the life that all women lead. Yeah. You know, I want her her life to mirror, you know, imagine what she could get done if she didn't have to fight these roadblocks all the time. Imagine mm. just if you just could do your job. Mm. And I wanted her to have those frustrations that I've had, that all my friends have had, and I wanted her to tackle them in such a heroic way that people – one, one of the reviewers actually said, she said, I loved Antigone so much and I felt myself whispering into her ear as a character, go girl, you know, you can do it, you mm. can do it, every time she had to face another one of these things. But I think this mirrors the female experience. And when the Ellen and Ellen uh, people rang me to say that it had won the crime prize, um, I think it was the, the panel of judges, I think a lot of them were women. And I think it resonated so strongly yeah. because it, um, because I think every woman reads it and says, uh-huh, we know that this happened, so it's not just her. So I didn't want her to have this fairy tale life when that didn't happen. It wouldn't be it much of a novel. Who you are. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it doesn't matter who you are or how strong you are, mm. you still have to fight and butt up against these, uh, these kinds of men. Mm. And, of course, you also challenge the straight line that we so often draw uh, between um, violence and its causes. You take on the idea of privilege and you flip the script a little on the notion that bad begets bad and that so-called good families are always the right kind of people, which is very dangerous. It's, it's very pervasive that we believe that, oh, well, they're a good person and they come from, you know, I, I'm going to move away from good. Good is a really loaded term. They're a good person and they're like us. So often we say, well, they're like us and, and so they must be okay. Those presumptions, what did you want to challenge there? And, and again, no spoilers about how it plays out in the novel, but the danger of those presumptions. Yes, I, I think that, that we think that these things don't happen in certain socioeconomic groups. We look at um, people around us and think, well, it, it couldn't happen. But again, you're getting these one in four, one in ten, you're getting these statistics and you look as a teacher, you look around the classroom and you think, well, if these statistics are playing out in here, uh, then one quarter of the kids sitting in front of me um, are in jeopardy. And and this becomes really frightening. And I think sometimes you work in a, a regular suburb and you, you work in a regular school and you think that it won't cross those boundaries, but it does. And this is this dangerous thinking when we assume that th these kind of statistics are happening somewhere that's near me. Mm. And what I wanted to show in the novel was it can happen to anybody. And I also wanted to show this culture of silence around it, that even when we know it's happening, we don't say anything. Mm. And that too is really dangerous. Vicky, I'd like to come full circle in our chat. I am speaking, we haven't mentioned the book for a, a, a hot minute. I'm speaking with Vicky Petratus and her new novel is The Unbelieved. I want to come full circle. In prepping for our chat, I tuned in to your podcast, The Vanishing of Vivian Cameron. So shout out, give it a listen, everybody. It's about the Phillip Island murder, which was, I believe that was the first uh, book that you wrote um, yeah. dealing with that case. It seemed to me that an attraction but also a frustration of true crime is that it's likely you won't get all the answers. So no spoilers for the unbelieved, but how did you want to deal with this reality in your fiction or is that the point? You finally get to have all the answers. <laughs> I think that the unbelieved 
in like in life, you may not get all of the the legal answers. I think the whole point of that book is that the justice system is not serving women. It doesn't work. And so in the book, I have to mirror that. But it also, in the book, I wanted to have this sense of when justice, justice doesn't work, there will be a natural justice that steps in, you know, that water finds its own level. And so what what I, I wanted to look at was that if the justice system doesn't do its job, um, people people will find their justice. You know, there's not a vortex of no justice. It will find, we will find a way. And so um, we'd all like the law to do its work, you know, to do its job, but it just, you know, it's frustratingly um, not changing. Um, but I think that there's a satisfying conclusion at the end of uh, The Unbelieved because you can do that in fiction. Mm can't do it in non-fiction. Vicky, I feel like I caught a couple of hints in our chat. Not not big things, but just little little suggestions in what you were saying that um, this might not be the end of Antigone Pollard. Um, look, again, no spoilers, but I feel like she's done a pretty thorough job in Deception Bay. Is she going to have to move if there's going to be another book? I've already started the new book, so I'm about a quarter of the way into it, and she hasn't moved. Oh, I was going to say, does she have another nan who has a house in another town, or she? Well, she doesn't know her dad, so there's there's never been a hint of a dad. So she, you know, she stays in Deception Bay. She's really mm. settled there, and um, and another big crime happens to to get her moving, and and I started that well before the book came out. And I was really gratified that people said, I want more of Waffles, I want more of Antigone, I want more of Waza. And these characters, once you've established them, let's get them on the ground again, let's get them in the field. And so I thought, well, that's good because I've already started it and um, I will be continuing their adventures with some whole new town kind of issues that... um, and they, you know, I'm going around small country towns. I'm getting a lot of material. Uh-huh. People are kind of coming up to me and going, "Oh, this is happening at my church, or this is happening there." I'm like, "Ooh, okay." Yeah, I mean, I don't know. In a in a post COVID world, the the face of towns is also changing. So I feel like there's there's um, there's fertile ground. Indeed, well, there is very fertile ground. The Unbelieved is only recently in the world. We might have to save that talk about the next novel. I'll stick that in the podcast um, for for avid listeners. I am speaking with Vicky Petratus. Her new novel is The Unbelieved, uh, like an absolute page turner that really reflects our world. Must read. Thank you so much, Vicky, for joining me on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely. And now, for those of you who have stuck around, a special spoiler moment where Vicky discusses her thinking in putting a beloved character in jeopardy. Yeah? You shot the dog. <laughs> yes, but the dog didn't die. I know, but you don't... can never die. You don't find that out. You know, that sometimes the dog does die and I'm just like, what, what? No. See, the thing was, you have to, you have to, I didn't ever want to put her in peril Mm. because I just didn't. I wanted her to be super tough and I didn't want to have this, you may read these novels where they're beaten to a pulp. Mm. It's like she, no one would touch her. 
And so therefore I had to, as an author, you've got to jeopardise someone, something that she loves. So you have to see her in that vulnerable, but you can never mm. kill her. So the dog will always be fine. I'm just throwing it out there. You couldn't have shot Wazza? <laughs> Was that, was that next time? Was that, that ever that was that time. ever an equation? Were you just thinking, okay, who am I going to shoot? And <laughs> no, it always had to be the dog because she's not, she doesn't have children. She doesn't have, you know, you can't sort of shoot her nana. Like you, you needed to look at people that were really close. But I also wanted to show what I saw when I did the dog squad book mm. that handlers. The dog is always there to protect the handler, but every now and again there's a situation where the handler's going, shit, I've got to protect the dog. And so you get this really nice switch between the dog being your absolute wolf that's coming beside you and the dog then becomes someone that you have to jump in and save. So Mm. it kind of shows that symbiotic but clearly it's distressed you, so I apologise. No, I just, I always have to bring this up. And look, I'm throwing it out there. Yeah. When does, yeah. when, when did, when, when the unbelieved, when did it sort of land? I never know because um, I get sent pre-release. Two weeks, and the 2nd of August, right. 17 days. Have 17. you done events yet? Have you? Yeah, I'm in a hotel room at the moment. Oh, amazing. So I'm up at Portland. Um, Am I the first person to bring this up with you? Because I'm like, I feel like people people who who read these sorts of books, I think, because it's you're not the first person to put an animal in jeopardy. But I feel like yeah. this is what we feel strongly about. Yeah, which yeah. probably speaks to some um, messed people up people don't in in live talks because it's a spoiler. Yeah. So I think um, that's why I it's not think- part of the interview proper. <laughs> It's not. It's no. not. Mm. Um, and people love the dog. Mm. Yeah. Can I ask then? Because you you obviously know so much more about this than me, and you, it was really interesting the way we'll de- we'll get, we're going to get to the interview proper. I'm sorry. I, I, you, <laughs> I don't even have dogs. Like to, uh, until three minutes ago, I sort of got up to get my glass of water before we spoke. I had a cat fighting for the keyboard, which is like a point of contention when I'm doing these. You know, doing anything in my office. Um, mm. So we we see Waffles like just this incredibly fierce beast when he's in work mode. Mm, mm. Is it is it something to do with the fact that Antigone wasn't there in the house? Like it, in my head, I, I feel like it, it, it's an inconsistency that he didn't just attack Bob um, and that mm. he was in a position where he could be shot. Um, mm. h- how does that work with working dogs? Um, when when they go on the harness, they're in work mode. I mean, Waffles would have protected the house too, and I leave it a bit vague as to whether when Bob broke in and he smashed through the glass and whether Waffles has come in through the glass. So I left that um, on purpose a little bit vague. Um, but whether or not, um, yeah, it, it's I needed to have the dog in jeopardy and I needed yeah. to have her so... Uh, but, yeah, Waffles definitely would have uh, bitten him if he could have, so I'm not sure whether because the the family knew that there was a dog, mm. so whether or not he came in in a puffy coat or cool. oven mitts. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just, I mean, I was just, I was just interested. I'm like, I'm, I'm actually really surprised that I am the first person to bring up the dog thing with you. And, I mean, I understand a, a good audience will respect those spoilers. But yeah. um, I won't be surprised if um, if if I were to run into you at the shops one day, which is not going to happen because I'm in the Blue Mountains. But and and you say to me, do you know what, Andrew? More people have brought up the dog. <laughs> um, yeah, the only thing that people have talked about, particularly in interviews, is just how much they love the dog. Mm. So they're quite happy. And then, of course, when you bring the dog to drink, 
then you love him even more mm. when he comes back and yep. he's at the count, you know, the, the, the summer spring fair or whatever. And you, you love him because everybody's giving him treats and everybody's hugging mm. him. So it's kind of like the hero is in jeopardy and then the hero comes back. Yep. So, I mean, I guess it's a trope, but I think the, the dog lovers, um, you know, yeah, it was a decision that I had to do, but you could never kill him. Oh, geez. Yeah. And look, you need stakes. You need stakes. Yeah. Like for, a, yeah. in a narrative sense, not in the waffles deserves a treat sense. Um, you probably did deserve a stake. But yeah, you do. And, and waffles being injured raises the stakes. Mm. And it also allows her, like, I love the scene afterwards where Jess and Waza are helping her clean up and mm. then she gets to tell them about Gemma. So that it also brings her into that area of vulnerability where you wouldn't have got if that didn't have ha- it didn't have happened. I'm mm. not good at words, am I? Um, so yeah, it, it serves a narrative purpose, mm. but yeah, it does it definitely raises the stakes. That's it for this great conversation with Vicky Petraders. Vicky's new book is called The Unbelieved. It is out now from Alan and Unwin. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Dorog and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. You'll find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can also subscribe in your podcast app, especially now that we've migrated to a new site. Make sure that you are following us at Megaphone. Make sure you are subscribed so you're getting a new podcast every single week. I am Andrew Popel. I will be back very soon with more great conversations from incredible Australian authors here on Final Draft. Till then, happy reading.